Who was the real Thomas Jefferson and why is that important? We'll talk about it on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all of those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Once you're on my email list, you'll get some correspondence from me, typically four or five days a week. Don't unsubscribe because if you stay on that list, you're going to get great coupons on McClanahan Academy courses, which is what this podcast is all about today. I have a new class out at McClanahan Academy reading Thomas Jefferson. And if you've been on my email list, you've already gotten the coupon. You'll get it for the lowest price you'll ever see it. So make sure you're on that email list because it is a win-win for you. You You get great infotainment and then you can save some money too. If you like the podcast, you'll love the classes at McClanahan Academy. So it's how you keep this podcast free of charge by purchasing classes there. Or, of course, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the support tab. You can go to anchor.fm if you want to support the show that way. Click on the heart button under the video. It's a little super thanks button. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review where you can or a comment on YouTube. All those things help get more eyes and ears on the podcast. Well, Let's talk about the topic, and it is, of course, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is, again, I would argue, the second most important member of the founding generation. Now, you could actually make a case he's the most important member, uh, but I would say he's the second most important just because of Washington's profile and what Washington was able to do as the leader of the Continental Army and then, of course, the glue that really held this federal republic together. Uh, You probably would have seen two different federal republics or maybe three different federal republics if uh, George Washington had not been president of the United States. I think you might have seen uh, different groups go their own way, different groups of states. Because we had such uh, disjointed cultures in America, they were all British, quote-unquote, but they certainly didn't see eye to eye. And Jefferson actually points that out in a letter to John Adams later in his life. So, George Washington is the most important, but then Thomas Jefferson would be the second most important. You could argue Alexander Hamilton because of his lasting impact on how we think about economy in America. And of course, Hamilton's vision for the political economy and the powers of the central government are now ascendant. But there was no one more important in that founding generation in the period of time from the 1770s up until about 1860 than Thomas Jefferson, really. George Washington, other than George Washington. Jefferson, of course, is the author of the Declaration of Independence. He uh, was the most important president in this period of time, even more important than Washington in some ways, because Jefferson's vision for America dominated American history from 1801 until Lincoln took office in 1861. You had 60 years of presidents who really looked back to Jefferson, for an example, rather than Washington in many ways. Even Lincoln, in his Gettysburg Address and and, uh, how he would reference the Declaration, 
was basically admitting that he thought Jefferson was his most important idol. Henry Clay, the Whig Henry Clay, the author of The American System, was always considered to be a Jeffersonian. In fact, that's what he thought of himself. The Whig Party was a national Jeffersonian party. That's simply what it was. Uh, it was at least Federalist in its economic programs, but very Jeffersonian in its outlook at times. You know, John Totter was a Whig. John Tyler supped with Thomas Jefferson when he was a boy when his father would eat with Jefferson. So you look at the complexities of this, in, of this situation, you didn't have a clear-cut distinction between non-Jeffersonians and Jeffersonians after Jefferson was president. It started to fade away very quickly. You had the Federalists who Jefferson called malcontents, and of course they were uh, the faction that was around when Jefferson took office, but they start to disappear by the 18-teens. Uh, some of them, of course, die out, uh, but you do see these national Republicans like John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay rise to power, and those national Republicans had in many ways considered themselves to be Jeffersonians. Now, maybe not John Quincy Adams so much. He would have been in line with the old Federalist faction. But look, even John Adams was much more independent than the Federalists of the Essex Junto. John Adams was something else. And so this is where, you know, John Adams is an interesting figure as well. Not one of my favorites, but certainly an interesting figure. So we have this Jeffersonian period. In fact, you could say it's Jeffersonian America from the time Jefferson assumes office in 1801 until he's out of office. But then you have two other presidents, Madison and Monroe, that continue the Jeffersonian vision of America. And even after that, you look at Andrew Jackson, who spoke in very Jeffersonian terms. Same thing with Martin Van Buren, uh, even William Henry Harrison. And, of course, John Tyler uh, was very much a Jeffersonian. Uh, you get James K. Polk, who had kind of Jeffersonian views, at least on domestic policy in some ways. Uh, Zachary Taylor even sounded like Jefferson at times. Same thing with Millard Fillmore. Certainly Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan all sounded very Jeffersonian. Uh, so Jefferson was uh, the, the man that, again, carried the United States forward for 60 years in, in the direction of the United States, particularly in things like foreign policy, but also in many ways in domestic policy. So that's one of the reasons why Jefferson is so important. And in my latest class at McClanahan Academy, reading Thomas Jefferson, I focus on a 50-year period of Jefferson's life. 15 documents, 50 years. And these are 15 documents that I hand-selected because I thought they would be a nice example of who Jefferson was politically, also ideologically, uh, his positions on a variety of issues. I thought that they would be representative of the real Thomas Jefferson. Now, when I say that, Jefferson, again, can be someone to everyone. The left certainly claims Thomas Jefferson, they, or at least they did for a long time. Progressives in the 1930s and the 19-teens, and then even after that, like to claim Thomas Jefferson because he was the Democrat. He was the man who was opposed to, supposedly opposed to aristocracy, the man that supported the people. He believed in the farmers, the working class. Uh, and Jefferson was uh, a, a believer in you know, what you might say is progressive government in some ways. Uh, of course, that's false. But also, there was this ideological tinge to it that came out of the 1850s and, and of course, Abraham Lincoln. And that would be the Proposition Nation. Jefferson is the author of the Proposition Nation. This part of it 
is still current on the left. In fact, I was watching a video uh, as I'm recording this just yesterday on a woman who claims to be, a or at least the video title was, Descendant of Thomas Jefferson. Of course, she's not. She's a descendant of Peter Hemings, who was in no way related to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, but regardless, that the video title says that, and of course, they say in the video she's Jefferson's, or Jefferson was her fifth great grandfather. And that, I mean, I guess Jefferson is just fathering people all over the place that he could never have fathered. Uh, but anyways, um, so she claimed the, the title is misleading, and even the video gets that part wrong. But in the video, she talks about how important the Declaration is for her worldview. Uh, she says she'd love the Declaration. She's an African-American woman, loved the Declaration growing up because it had this, this uh, core to it of all people are created equal. Now, of course, that's not what Jefferson wrote. And uh, the way that that term equal is used now is way outside the bounds of what Jefferson meant. But regardless, the left still clings to that. And they cling to it because of Lincoln's revolutionizing the revolution and the proposition nation myth. So we have this Jefferson on the left. And look, even to call Hannah Jones in the 1619 Project, believes in the proposition nation myth. She doesn't believe that anyone meant it. And I would actually agree with her on that, that they didn't really mean it the way that, of course, abolitionists thought that they meant it, or uh, the left has taken it over time, or these, uh, the Declaration of Sentiments coming out of the Seneca Falls Convention. That was a whole transformation of Jefferson's position and Jefferson's phrase uh, into something that would make it more palatable to reform movements. So you have Jefferson the leftist. And look, even Kevin Gutzman in his book, uh, Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, essentially makes the case that Jefferson was a radical in his own time, that Jefferson was uh, far to the left of people in Virginia, that he was not really a conservative, that he was not someone who would have aligned himself with Virginia conservatives. He had some positions that were not really in line with what uh, conservatives in Virginia wanted. But that is the left's Thomas Jefferson. Now, who is Jefferson to the right or maybe to libertarians? Well, Jefferson is the defender of federalism. And I'll use Kevin Goodsman again. Goodsman's first chapter, focused, the, the very first chapter, the most important chapter of the book, focuses on federalism. Because that was Jefferson's driving principle when it came to the organization of government in the United States. He believed in that position from the time he was in his early 30s until the day he died in 1826. And so that Jefferson is why the right likes Thomas Jefferson, because you have this principle of federalism, decentralization, states' rights, state powers. Uh, you have a Jefferson that's very much entrenched in the uh, belief that the states can control their own domestic affairs, uh, that only the central authority only has very limited powers over a few defined items, uh, that uh, government should tax very little and spend even less. Um, so that Jefferson has been appealing to conservatives for a long period of time. And then, of course, you have Jefferson as a Southerner, which he was consciously a Southerner. Jefferson was a, was a plantation owner. He was a member of Virginia society. He was reared in Virginia. He called Virginia his country. He loved the agrarian life. And the South, for a very long period of time, viewed Jefferson as one of theirs because of that. Jefferson was the embodiment of what it meant to be an agrarian. You, know, you look at 
the Nashville agrarians, the fugitive agrarians, and they're very Jeffersonian in their worldview. Uh, they, they thought that agrarianism was the way forward. And you had all these other people, and, and of course Jefferson's time and then after, who would be very much in line with what Jefferson, Jeffersonianism, if there's an ism to it, which would have been, uh, had, a, had a tinge of that agrarianism. People like John Taylor of Caroline, for example. And there's many, many others. You go into the 20th century, you have Richard Weaver and Mel Bradford. All of these people had at least a, 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 an affinity in some ways for Thomas Jefferson and his agrarianism. So that's Jefferson on the right. In other words, you can find something in Jefferson for just about everyone, which makes him one of the most American people of the founding generation. Same thing with George Washington. Alexander Hamilton's a little harder to find that, that, that uh, affinity across sections. There were Jeffersonians north and south. There are Jeffersonians today, even today, north and south, that are trying to live this very Jeffersonian life. So Jefferson appealed to everyone in America, which is why I would say he was the most American, but consciously Southern, of all of the founders, which means that in many ways... The South really was America. How people defined America came more out of the South than anywhere else. Now, this doesn't mean that Jefferson didn't admire some things about New England. He did. He actually liked the idea of their system of local government, what he called ward republics. I get into that in reading Thomas Jefferson. So, Jefferson, the person to everyone, the man to everyone, is an important thing to realize when you're talking about Jefferson. Now, of course... Jefferson's reputation has taken a major hit uh, recently because of our woke culture. So uh, that's that's been developing over the last, say, 30 years. It started with political correctness. It's moved into wokeism, which is a much more militant version of political correctness. And Jefferson cannot be admired uh, from by anyone who is woke because, of course, his supposed relationship with Sally Hemings and uh, his status as a slaveholder and all of these things. So there's that Jefferson, too, that has become very much a pariah, the antithesis of the ideals of America, the hypocrite. Jefferson the hypocrite, who uh, said these things and didn't really believe them. I address that in the class, by the way, and that's something I do talk about. And uh, Jefferson, I think, really did believe these things, uh, at least in terms of you know kind of an idea, but... He didn't often act on them, and that is something you can criticize Thomas Jefferson for. If the man really was anti-slavery, he would have freed his slaves. Uh, but he did look at it in a larger perspective. Jefferson was always thinking in a, from a larger picture, though I would say that off, most of the time his, uh, his vision stopped at his mountains of Virginia. But certainly he thought of you know, the, the long-term implications of X, Y, or Z as he was ruminating in private letters about what should be done about American society, or even some public statements. So I mentioned, you know, who Jefferson was. Of course, politically, Jefferson served in all kinds of positions in his time in that 50-year period. He was a member of the House of Burgesses in Virginia, a member of the Continental Congress. Um, he was governor of Virginia. He was uh, secretary of state, minister to France. Uh, he was uh, vice president of the United States and, of course, president of the United States. In that 50-year period I cover, he starts, really we start when he's about 31 years old and end when he's 81 years old. So that's a long period of time to look at someone's public life and also his private life. Because when he retires in 1809, 
Jefferson really retires. He goes back to Monticello, and for nearly the next 20 years, he doesn't do much. He writes letters. He tends to his plantation. He he works on, of course, establishing the University of Virginia, which was a lot. I mean, I'll say he didn't, he didn't do anything politically at that point. He was focusing on education, which was one of his most important uh, contributions to the United States, his view on education and, of course, this lasting uh, university there in, in Virginia. And, of course, even in Virginia now, they're talking that the students don't like Thomas Jefferson. They want to take down his statue, the man who established the university. Uh, but he, had a, he always had a project, uh, uh, an educational project in mind. And, of course, Virginia, University of Virginia becomes that. In fact, Jefferson loved that part of his life so much, it's one of the most important things he put on his tombstone. It was uh, the author of uh, the Declaration of Independence, the author of the uh, Statute for Religious Freedom in Virginia, and, of course, the founder of the University of Virginia. So Jefferson, again, that, that part of Jefferson, Jefferson and religion is something that people often focus on. Was Jefferson really a Christian? Was he not a Christian? What, what, what kind of Christian was he if he was a Christian? Was he a deist? Was he something else? This is something that people spend a lot of time talking about and trying to go through his letters and pull out things that would support one position or another. Um, and I do talk about this in uh, in the class, reading Thomas Jefferson. And what I do in this class and what I've done in a lot of the recent classes at McLean Academy, they're reading seminars. I want you to get Jefferson in his own words. I want you to understand Thomas Jefferson for how Thomas Jefferson wrote and how what he said about Thomas Jefferson. In fact, we do cover his autobiography. Now, there's uh, he wrote this in 1821. He stopped. Um, he, he, he started with the beginning of his life and stops in 1790. So he doesn't even get to what might be considered the most important part of his entire political career. He stops in 1790 when he returns home from France, and that's it. He doesn't talk about his time as uh, Secretary of State. He doesn't talk about his time as Vice President. He doesn't talk about his time as President. That's it. He stops there. And maybe it's because Jefferson thought that was the most exciting time of his life, from 17, the 1760s until 1790. He certainly loved France, and he spent a lot of time talking about France and the French Revolution in that particular document. But we do cover sections of that. I don't go through the whole thing. Because some of it uh, is... And Jefferson, I'll just say this. Jefferson wasn't a very good writer, uh, particularly when it came to writing something like that. It really is a pretty boring document. You can say the same thing with the, with the notes on the state of Virginia, which... I've covered it in another class, so I didn't cover it in this class. And I've also covered the Declaration in another class, so I didn't cover it in this class either. But um, both of those, you know, the Declaration's fine. The Notes is kind of boring. I mean, it's it's not a, a stimulating read, and neither is the autobiography. But there are some important nuggets that I pull out of that autobiography that we cover in the class. So what else can we say about Thomas Jefferson? Well, uh, when you look at who Jefferson was, uh, can you say Jefferson was an idealist? He certainly had this vision of the ideal society. And so Jefferson did operate from that position at times. Uh, in fact, in this letter to, uh, to John Adams, uh, he talks about you know, uh, the natural aristocracy. Jefferson wasn't really that much of a Democrat in that he believed that there, were, there was a, a natural elite in society. He thought, of course, he was one of those individuals. And he talks about this very strange idea of you know, having... Uh, many, many children, if you're one of these elite people, almost getting into uh, eugenics, you know, kind of this early uh, belief in eugenics. But 
Uh, Jefferson uh, certainly thought of himself as one of the elites, and he thought that you should prepare society in that way. It went back to his position on education. Have a way that you can take everyone in, in, in the community, educate them, give them a rudimentary education, and you find the naturally talented individuals and you push them harder and give them advantages to move them through to a higher education. And you create this natural aristocracy that can run the government, society, business, all of these things. These people then, it didn't matter if what their, what their original station was, there's going to be a fluidity. There's going to be an upward mobility in society. You're not locking people into these castes um, when it comes to uh, citizens. Now, he didn't believe this was possible for African Americans. Um, and this is where, you know, you get when we have Jefferson on race and slavery, Jefferson would write things uh, at some points in his life where he would begrudgingly accept that uh, some black Americans might show abilities. And he would say things like, well, this is a nice example of the fact that maybe my positions on race have been incorrect all my life, but they've been based on my own observations and experiences. And when he wrote notes on the state of Virginia, which I did not cover in this class, um, he said some really, really, really racist things. And so people, what we would consider racist today. So people often, you know, point back to that for Thomas Jefferson. Um, but he was, at least in principle, committed to the abolition of slavery, ultimately, eventually. Um, he, of course, in the summary view, which we start the class with, had blamed the institution on the king because he said that the colonies were trying to end it. The king was blocking it. So there was that part of, of Jefferson's life. He, of course, had an original clause in the Declaration, which was rejected by South Carolina and Georgia, that would have um, that would have uh, blamed, again, the king for slavery. We know that Jefferson wrote in his autobiography that uh, this prohibition on the international slave trade was also opposed by some of these southern states, but also New England. So he was placing, because the carrying trade, he called it, right? The, 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 uh, the ability to make money on the international slave trade. And so New England was certainly interested in that. But Jefferson did try to, to uh, uh, bottle the institution up, at least as a young man. This was his, uh, his plans for the old Northwest Territory, which we cover in the class. But by the time we got to the 19th century, Jefferson was a firm believer in what's called diffusion. So Jefferson thought if you, if you spread slavery out over the United States, it will eliminate the institution because you're not really increasing slavery. You're not expanding slavery. You're simply spreading it out. You're taking a slave, say, from Virginia and moving it to, uh, to Missouri or to Texas or to Arizona. And that would lessen the institution in certain areas. And then, of course, you would ultimately have it become so minor that people would simply uh, forget about it. And then Jefferson was also a believer in what he called expatriation, which was he, he didn't really think that white and black Americans could live together in the same place. Uh, he didn't think that black Americans were really capable for, for government in a Western style and in, in the Anglo-American tradition. He didn't think that that was something they could they could come to uh, to live under and operate under. So he thought expatriation was the best way forward. And uh, we cover a letter on the Missouri controversy, of course, that Jefferson wrote very famously to John Holmes, where uh, he he suggests that uh, we have the wolf by the ears and we can't let him go and because safety will require that we hold on to it. So this is his position on, on slavery. He thought it was kind of a 
you know, a, 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 it was a wolf. It was something that they had to tolerate, but they couldn't let it go because it would attack them if they did. So this kind of shows his position on what would happen if you just abolish slavery outright and then you didn't have some way to get rid of the institution entirely, which would also be expatriation because he thought it would lead to insurrection. So I cover that in the class as well. But again, I start with this uh, summary view of the rights of British America. And if you want to get where Jefferson started in terms of government, you have to, you have to look at this particular public document. Um, Jefferson calls the colony states here. He, in fact, calls them countries. And he claims that the legislature of New York, for example, is the same as the legislature in London and that they're equal legislatures. And so he's already developing this concept of federalism in 1774 with the British system in mind. And he would carry that forward for the rest of his life. In fact, as I said, uh, Jefferson was certainly interested in federalism. It was, the under, it was the position that undergirded his entire political philosophy. You see it in the summary view. You see it in the declaration when he says in the last paragraph that we have free and independent states. Uh, you see it when, of course, you get to the Kentucky Resolutions. Uh, and, of course, the Kentucky Resolutions are some of the finest expression of compact fact uh, uh, arguments that we have in American history. You see it in Jefferson's first inaugural address and his second inaugural address. He talks about it when he looks at the Missouri question. This was the most important thing to get out of Thomas Jefferson. It does All these other things are interesting. They're interesting exercises, his views on education, his views on race and slavery. All of this stuff is interesting. But if you want to get to Thomas Jefferson, I do focus a lot on Jefferson as the political mind, you have to understand Jefferson's position on federalism. And as a corresponding part of that, you have to look at Jefferson's views on the courts. I do talk about that because Jefferson wrote about it, uh, particularly in uh, when, he, when he got into uh, where he thought there were some real problems with courts in, 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 uh, in American history, that courts would be abusive. He wanted to have some way to mitigate the powers of the courts. And because of his experience in this, you know, he, he really hated the fact that John Marshall, in his mind, usurped some power from the states by coming up with judicial review. He was, I mean, look, Virginia led the way in this, uh, that the Supreme Court was going beyond its constituted powers by uh, coming up with judicial review. So he held on to that position his entire life. He didn't just say it when Marshall gave his opinion in, uh, in Marbury v. Madison or when Marshall was being rather obnoxious in Jefferson's mind on the bench. He didn't, he didn't deviate from that, even as an old man. As he's writing in 1824, he's saying the exact same things, that the courts have been a problem, and there needed to be some way to, uh, to rein in the power of these courts, and particularly it was control over the judges. There had to be some way to control these federal judges who could be rather obnoxious. Now, the other thing, of course, that Jefferson is often, you know, famous for is natural rights. Did Jefferson really believe in natural rights? He used this term, you know, natural rights and natural law, state of nature. He used all that stuff. And of course, the Straussians pick up on Jefferson there, and, and they firmly believe in, in the proposition nation myth. They take that one line of the declaration and say that is the core principle of America. What did Jefferson think about it? Well, he did talk about natural rights quite a bit, and he used natural right for a lot of different things, like the natural right of of uh, migration. He thought that was a natural right to be able to go from one place to another. He threw this term natural right around a lot 
And you have to wonder if it was just kind of a loose phrase for Jefferson at times. Um, he would certainly talk about the natural right to freedom of conscience, um, which was something he wrote to the Danbury Baptists. I cover that letter in this class. Um, so we get into this class, Jefferson's position on natural rights and natural law and what all of that stuff meant. Uh, and was Jefferson really out? Was he an enlightened thinker? Was he outside the bounds of mainstream society at that time? Did he really? Was he really firmly committed to these things as uh, a political being, or were these things just ruminations of Jefferson as he would sit down and write letters at times, or even in some public documents? So we talk about that in the class, and I, I think again that's something that people are going to be interested in as we go through Jefferson and what he said about these things. Also, we look at Jefferson and secession, and this is a big issue. Was Jefferson in favor of secession? Well, again, I think that you could say that Jefferson didn't really think it was a good idea, but he never said it was illegal. And perhaps it could happen in the future. He talked about, and I'll cover some of these things in the class, but perhaps uh, you know there could be a time when you had a Western Confederacy. But this issue was brought up as early as the 1790s, and... Uh, he's, he's very interested in this difference between New England and Virginia. In fact, in this letter to John Adams in 1813, he really defines what it meant to be a Virginian and, uh, and someone from Massachusetts, a Bay Stater. He said, these are the things that separate us out. And Jefferson was conscious of the fact that there was a difference between New England and Virginia and that those differences could best be settled through federalism. Um, in a very famous letter to, to John uh, Taylor of Caroline, he he writes, of course, that New England rides us very hard, right? I mean, they, they saddle and ride us very hard. I mean, this is what he thought New England was doing, but he wasn't necessarily certain breaking away at that point and forming an independent Southern Confederacy or an independent Virginia, North Carolina, whatever it was, would be a very good idea because of the long-term ramifications. So Jefferson would at least calculate the value of union, uh, but he wasn't always... Uh, but he never really thought that uh, secession was illegal. He would always think that secession could be possible, but maybe it wasn't the best idea. So I cover all this stuff in this class. It's such a meaty class. And again, we do it in Jefferson's words, so you can actually see what Jefferson said about these things. I guarantee you when you walk away from this class reading Thomas Jefferson, you're going to have a fuller understanding of who Jefferson was and his positions on all kinds of things in society um, through his own words. So the class is reading Thomas Jefferson. It's at McClanahan Academy. That's the real Thomas Jefferson in his own words. You should take it because, again, Jefferson would be the second most important member of the founding generation, and every American should know who the real Thomas Jefferson was. I'll see you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.